Good morning. Welcome to Horizon. We're so glad you're joining us. We're starting a brand new series this week called Plotline. And uh, we have a very special guest. Our great friend Beth is back, Beth Kuchenberger. And uh, our, our first week in the plotline of uh, great literature is the story of Oliver Twist. And I can remember distinctly being about 11 years old in, a, in Cape Cod on a summer vacation. It was pouring rain and we sat in a makeshift movie theater in a tent and watched the movie Oliver Twist. And the story just gripped me. And uh, I loved it. And, and I realized when I read the book uh, at later, okay, I never read the book. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to look at a satirical uh, reminiscing of reading the book. And if you, if you watch this, I'm pretty sure Chad never read this book either. So let's take a look at it together. Chad, what's up? Tom, just the man I'm looking for. We're starting this new series at Horizon called Plotline, where I need to summarize some classic pieces of literature like this. Uh, Oliver Twist. Yeah, I love this book. Charles Dickens is one of my favorites. I can't tell you how good it is to hear that, because I um, may not have remembered all uh, the pieces. The, uh, the dog ate your homework. Well, I mean, I, I did read it. It was just many, many years ago, and let's just say that I may have forgotten some pieces. So I, I wrote down a, a plot summary, and maybe you could fill in the blanks. Oh, sure. Go ahead. <clears throat> it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Uh, the Tale of Two Cities. Huh? Uh, not Oliver Twist. That is the opening to A Tale of Two Cities. Oh, sorry. Wrong uh, <laughs> got it, got it. It's 1830s London. Oliver is an orphan in a very dreary orphanage with a bunch of abandoned children. The cruel and mean caretaker, one Daddy Warbucks, refuses to give them anything to eat. Wait, wait. did you just say Daddy Warbucks? Yes, the mean and cruel caretaker of the orphanage. No, no, that's the billionaire in Little Orphan Annie. Mr. Bumble is the head of the orphanage in Oliver Twist. Bumble, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Bumble. Mr. Bumble, the mean and cruel caretaker of the orphanage, who does not give the orphans enough to eat. Therefore, they gather together and burst into song. Food, glorious food, uh, not, we wish we could eat some. Not, not in the book. Well, anyway, they, so they, they finish eating these disgusting bowls of gruel... But they're still hungry. So Oliver gets the short straw. He has to go up to Mr. Bumble and say, Please, sir, could I have more? Mr. Bumble says, No! They gather together again. It's a hard knock life for us. Also, it's a hard knock life also, for Also, Annie. Well, the point is somewhere in there is a big dance number. Because you may not know this, but Charles Dickens became famous not just for this novel, but for inventing the dance, The Twist, as in Oliver's Twist. Not true. Well, Oliver ends up being taken out of the orphanage. He's kind of adopted, but they're really scumbags. So they beat him within an inch of his life, and he escapes to London. When he gets to London, he meets up with a... 
a pickpocket by the name of the Jolly Rogers. Artful Dodger. Played by Billy Joel? No, that, that's, that's the cartoon Oliver and Company. It's, it's close enough, I guess. Well, anyway, so the <clears throat> Artful Dodger introduces him to a criminal mastermind by the name of Fagin. Now, Fagin has his own group of juvenile delinquents that he's training in petty crimes. Now, Oliver is hes pretty innocent. He doesn't realize it's a crime syndicate going on here. And while they're one day taking scars from people in the crowd, he ends up, through the bungled crime, getting blamed for it. Now, in a powerful, gripping courtroom drama, he is actually found, I think in the movie version... The lawyer's played by Gregory Peck, if I remember. Well, anyway, he is ultimately found not guilty, and then he is let go. In this beautiful, powerful scene, a little tear drips down his cheek. Baby, 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 baby. He looks out the window, and he says, The sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that... Tomorrow there'll be sun. The end. The end. Yeah, that's how it ends, isn't it? Uh, no. Uh, no, there is a lot more. You know, now you say that. That was eighth grade. Uh, that's when Goonies came out on VHS type. And I spent a lot of time that summer trying to reproduce uh, Data's gadgets. I had the pinchers apparel. I had the slinky I put on my arm that I could throw this boxing thing. I had the sticky darts. The hardest thing, actually, though, was the slick shoes. The, the oil Dad, compartment. Dad, the point? Well, I guess the point is I, I, I may not have finished the end of the book. I'm not sure you actually ever read any of it. Do you mind if I take it from here? Sure. Be my guest. So, after all this time living on the street, Oliver is so hungry and sick that he, he faints in the courtroom. That uh, uh, his, uh, as it happened, his accuser is a warm and sympathetic man uh, named Mr. Brownlow. Hmm. And he feels, he feels so sorry for Oliver that he takes him to his own home and uh, nurses him back to health. Uh, but Fagin uh, begins to worry that Oliver will uh, betray him to the authorities. So he sends uh, two members of the gang, uh, Bill Sykes and Nancy, to kidnap the boy and bring him back to their hideout. Uh, no, no, is that the point where they all do the twist? At no point does anyone do the twist. Why do they call this thing Oliver Twist? Oh, maybe it's like a surprise ending, like uh, Sixth Sense. You don't see it coming? In a world of hunger, gruel, and thuggery, M. Night Shyamalan introduces Oliver's twist. <laughs> no. So, Oliver is back under the control of Fagin and forced to do even more dangerous crimes. Uh, in one of these outings, he is shot in the arm. Uh, but then rescued by two kindly women, uh, Rose Maley and her mother, Mrs. Lindsay Maley. Now, at this point in the story, a mysterious criminal named Monks shows up. And uh, he conspires with Fagin to destroy Oliver. Uh, it turns out that Monks is actually Oliver's half-brother. And if he can get rid of Oliver, he stands to get the boy's share in an inheritance. 
Ah, but Nancy overhears the plot, and she warns Oliver and the Maleys. Ah, ah, but Fagin discovers what Nancy has done. She has betrayed Fagin's gang, and so he flies into a fit of rage and kills her. Ah, and then, then Sykes is haunted by Nancy's ghost. And an angry march is... I see dead people. It is like six cents. An angry mob chases Sykes, who, uh, who in his attempt to escape accidentally trips and falls and hangs himself. Uh, then, uh, well, as uh, the meanwhile, uh, Mr. Brownlow meets with monks and learns that this uh, family connection between he and Oliver is in fact legitimate. Mm. So he and Oliver, they decide to give this schemer a second chance. And they uh, gift him with a portion of the inheritance. A monk runs off to America. Uh, Fagin is uh, captured and hanged for his crimes. Uh, uh, Oliver discovers that Miss Rose is actually his aunt. And he lives happily ever after under the care of the kindly Mr. Brownlow. The end? Yes, the end. That's actually a pretty good story. Mm. It's a classic Theme classes. Goonies, am I right? Actually, I've, I've never seen it. You've never seen Goonies? <laughs> the Truffle Shuffle? Goonies never say die. Hey, you guys! Ew, it's this powerful, powerful drama about Mikey. Well, do you have a little better understanding of Oliver Twist now? <laughs> Hopefully, uh, maybe Chad is, is, is out there somewhere reading it right now, just to catch up a little bit on those details. You know, that's, that's one of the things that we hope kind of comes out of this plotline series, is that you know, we see all these movies that are based on all these great stories. We read all these books. You know, some of these books have the themes that have developed into hundreds of the stories we loved, and we relate to them in a way... Because there's something built into all of us that feels what those characters feel. That feels what those authors felt. You know, sometimes you just feel like a Justin Bieber doll who needs the help of a Ken and Barbie, don't you? <laughs> but sometimes you do feel like an orphan who's in need, who needs a rescuer, who needs someone who can help them. And today we have a special guest speaker who is with us. You heard Kenny mention that Beth Guckenberger is here today. Uh, you may have heard Beth speak before, but this is the first weekend that I've got to hear her, and I've just been enjoying it. Um, she has been a friend of Horizon for a long time. In fact, uh, through the last few weeks of our startup series, you've seen some videos where we have partnered with Back to Back in doing some work in other places in the world on our global serving trips. And she and her husband are actually the executives of Back to Back. And so a number of the trips that we've done, and even some of you have been on those trips with her. And so we're excited to have her here sharing with us today. But there's one fact that I think is probably the coolest thing about her. Uh, among all of the cool things about her and the books she herself has written and all those things, a lot of you will come up to me and say, four kids, how do you do it? Well, Beth and her husband have loved and raised Ten kids. <laughs> How do you do it? <laughs> so she's just a great woman. We're glad to have her with us today. So would you help me welcome Beth Guckenberger? Good morning, Horizon. Gosh, the answer to that question is uh, longer than the 25 minutes I have up here. The how, how do we do the 10 kids? But it is, it's my joy really to be here in this community. I feel like... Um, 
I do feel like a friend of this community. I have worshiped with you on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings and have been a part of Bible studies here with you and certainly have served with many of you on some of the back-to-back locations. I brought a picture with me because just a few weeks ago, I had the chance to serve for a week with many women from this congregation in one of our uh, back-to-back sites in Mazatlan, Mexico. And the picture actually is of us um, one on our last night out to dinner. So I'm just letting you know that this is not exactly what you look like on a mission trip on a regular basis. So don't, not a lot of scarves whipped around the neck on the finishing field. But um, I, I, I almost can't get on a microphone and not make sure that people around me know that they are highly invited to come enter into the lives of orphans and vulnerable children through back to back. So I just want to make sure you heard that clearly from me. But it's fun for me to help kick off this plotline series. Certainly as an author, I have long loved literature. And um, as someone who has worked among orphans and vulnerable children for 20 years, this is a perfect uh, story perfect week for me to fit into because the themes of Oliver Twist are found all throughout scripture, this idea of someone who has been cast off or given up on or left and set aside and how God and his people have have regularly, he, he, he asks us to engage those who are marginalized into our family. We see this theme even in Disney, you know, people talk about like how hard it must be to explain to children about what an orphan is or what an orf- what it, being an orphan means. And I tell them, I mean, every single animated film I've ever seen, the fish is away from his family or the, the deer has lost his mother. This is, these are universal themes, this idea of being left alone, set aside, broken off from their family. And there's something about um, the way that God has made us that makes us want to stand up for those marginalized and go find those missing and bring them back home. And so... Uh, like Drew said, we do have a large family. There are 10 of us. I did bring a picture of our whole family in a pyramid, so you can kind of see this is our Christmas card this year. Um, it is an uh, interesting way, that just because everybody always likes to know right off the bat, there are six girls and four boys. So the four boys, um, there's an old James Dobson quote that says, every boy is a prince trying to overthrow their king. So those four sons are actively trying to overthrow the throne in my house, but my husband's still holding his ground. And the six girls, um, when they're all, now some of them are older and in college or out of our house, but when they were all still there, we called that part of our house the den of estrogen. And, uh, and they have lots of stories, um, of how they found their way to become Guckenbergers, but, um, really by popular demand. I'm going to tell you the story of one of them um, because I think it illustrates some of the principles of what of, of this idea that is found in, in Oliver Twist. So when I very first moved to Mexico in 1997, there was um, this desire inside of me already to look for the missing and the marginalized and to figure out a way to incorporate their lives into ours and to stand up and stand for those that are cast aside and to figure out a way to create a bridge between anyone and everyone I've ever met and those that have been set aside. So imagine my surprise when as soon as I got to Mexico, I got pregnant with a baby and I was ecstatic about being pregnant with a baby, but I didn't let it stop this adoption dream. Um, I completed that pregnancy, gave birth in Mexico. Man, there was a lot that got lost in translation the day that baby was born. I remember I was in the labor room and I'd only spoke Spanish for like nine months. And this, this nurse came in and she asked me, um, quieres oxytocino? And I was like, I've been there long enough to know quieres means do you want and been there long enough to know tocino means bacon. So I said um, to my husband, I think she just asked me if I wanted bacon. And he goes, well, it must be like a Mexican thing. And I... <laughs> 
He's like, you should probably say yes all day today. And I was just like, yeah, si, quiero tocino. And so they um, came and fixed some stuff in the wires and monitors that were all hooked up to me. And then about an hour later, when I hadn't seen that bacon, I asked in a kind of an aggressive way you do when you're in labor, um, donde esta mi tocino? And uh, the lady is like, you can't eat today. I was like, well, you asked me if I want a bacon, and I actually right now very much do. And so we realized we were not communicating very well, and I was communicating at the top of my lungs in a language she didn't understand. So they bring in this physician who is bilingual to translate for us, and I said, she asked me if I want a bacon, and now I do, and now she won't bring it, and I don't understand. And he said, well, he talks to her for a minute. He goes, she asked you if you wanted oxytocin. That's a drug that speeds up delivery, oxytocino. He said, you said yes. And so we met our daughter, Emma, about an hour later. Um, she was the first of those 10 children. But even though we went through that process, I still had a baby in my heart that I wanted to adopt. And so we tried to adopt two little sisters, but that adoption got disrupted in the middle of it. That process began to fell apart. And after... We had been in Mexico for one year. We started to, we came back to the United States. We had just began the very beginnings of this ministry and we needed to come home and get all organized and raise support and find more staff. And so we asked some friends if they would trade places with us, if they would live in Mexico in the house that we had been renting at the start of Back to Back and maintain all the relationships. And we were going to come to the United States and get things more organized because what we had started that year had grown. And then we told them once we get everything all figured out here, you know, like legally and all that, we'll come back and either join you or trade you places again. So our friends moved there in July of 1998, and I was driving up through Texas that same month, same month to come back here to Cincinnati. And I can remember I was kind of pouting a little bit, to be honest with you. Like, I mean, I would have been a really good adoptive mom, and I'm driving away from a country where there's tons of orphans, and God, I don't understand why you wouldn't let me be a mom. Like, I've been a mom now already for about six weeks. Look how good at it I am, Right. And that same week in July of uh, 1998, God had his eye on another place the way he always does, listening to me kind of pout my way up. We get back here to Cincinnati, and my husband um, became immediately the assistant principal at one of the Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy campuses, where I, I mean, we needed to have earn a living while we got everything all going that school year. So he began to work at CHCA, and... Um, he was pretty young for that job. And so he was working twice as many hours to prove to everybody that he had the capacity to do that role. And I was taking care of this little baby. And it was now August, the next month of 1998. And on the first day of school, so Todd was off at school. I was home with this baby. My phone rang and I picked it up. And as soon as I heard it, I knew that there was chaos going on on the other side. And it was my friends who had traded places with us and they were calling me from Mexico. A little girl had been hit by a car. A car had come out of park on a hill and it rolled down and rolled over this four-year-old girl. And they were calling me from that scene. And they they had just been there like a month or two. They didn't really speak very much Spanish. And they're like, where do we go? And where do we take her? And how do we pay? And what do we do? And it was just like crazy town. So I'm shouting into the phone, go to this hospital and ask for this doctor and do these things. And I'm trying to tell her all the, all the details. And we couldn't figure out how I could get her the money. So I look down at my watch and I look over at my baby and I'm thinking about Todd at school. And I'm like, man, he is going to love the idea that he could just be hyper-focused this week. So I say on the phone, you know what? There's a noon flight out of Cincinnati to Monterey. I'm just going to bring some money with me. I'll get there by dinner time. You take her to the hospital and I'll, I'll just, I'll arrive with the money by dinner time. And they were like, okay, bye. And then I think, I don't even want to bother him, right? I mean, he's got so much going on today. 
I'm just going to like leave them a note, like random Mexico, enjoy the undivided attention you can spend on work this week. I'll be back by the weekend, you know, love, love. So I left him a note on the kitchen table. P.S. I took some money. (laughs) And I packed up Emma and I took the cash in my purse and we flew to Mexico that day. And we went straight from the airport to the hospital where I can tell you Ruth recovered from all her surgeries. And then I went from the hospital to the house that my friends were living in that I had been living in before then. And the phone rang and they were making a little joke about, you know, you answer the phone because it's time for you to face the music. And so uh, I went to pick up the phone, assuming it was going to be my husband, Todd, but it wasn't Todd. It was somebody who was calling that house looking for me. And I shouldn't have been there that day. I shouldn't have been there because, I mean, I didn't live there anymore. And if my friends had answered the phone, they would have not understood this person. They would have hung up on them. It was somebody who was doing some networking that evening because there was a little baby boy who had been born July of that year. And he had, he was only six weeks old and he had crossed over Mexican state lines and his international eligibility for adoption was, was closing. They had about 72 hours left in that window. And they were networking in the country looking for an American family that was paperwork ready and interested in an immediate adoption. And I was like, this call home is getting more interesting by the minute, right? (laughs) And I hear all the instructions and then I just... I just pause for a minute on the call. And there's a gift that the Bible talks about that he gives to people when we step into stories that he's written for us that don't make any sense, when you have more questions than you have answers. The Bible calls it a peace that passes understanding, that doesn't make any sense. And on this call, even though I was like, tomorrow in a state I've never been to that takes an airplane ride, I got to call Todd, he has to be there by noon. How are we going to do it? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to, like... I have this baby that's the exact same age. Like, I had all these questions, but as I experienced that piece, I knew this was something that he had for us. So I was like, sure, I'll be at the Veracruz courthouse tomorrow at noon. And I write down all the directions for that, and then I picked up the phone, and I called home here to Todd. He answers the phone in Spanish, just acknowledging who it was that he knew was calling him. And a large portion of that conversation is not totally appropriate for a Sunday morning, so I'm not going to tell you all those details. But there was a moment when I, after we talked about Ruth and all this little girl and everything, I tell him about this phone call, and he says to me, just give me a minute. And we just made, we just made room for God in that phone call. I think that in Exodus 25, God talks to his Israelites, and he tells them, if you, make, if you build me a temple... If you build me a tabernacle, if you make a space for me, I'm going to come and fill it. I think he still does that for us today. If we get ourselves in situations where we're in over our head and we just make space for him, he comes and fills it. He came into that phone conversation and he gave us both that peace. And I said, okay, well, good luck telling your brand new boss you'll be gone for an indefinite amount of time starting tomorrow, but I'll see you at the courthouse at noon. We got to the courthouse and I knew almost immediately I mean, I'd only been a mom for like a hot second, but I knew when I picked up this baby, there was something really wrong with him. His legs were scissored and I couldn't open him up. His arms were frozen in this funny position and no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't clean out the crevices in his elbows. He had lost a pound of his birth weight because he was living in this rainforest with this crazy fungus growing up all over him. His belly was really bloated. He had a growth in his mouth that made it hard to eat. He was very stressed out, totally constipated, crying all the time. So we were looking at this like little precious cross-legged fungus covered, constipated, stressed out little brown baby like, oh my gosh, isn't he so cute, right? (laughs) 
And uh, we completed his adoption in the next several weeks. My husband maintained his employment. Anyone that was worried about that detail. We got him back here to Cincinnati. And I took him to that fabulous children's hospital. And we began a battery of tests to try to figure out exactly what was wrong with this little boy. At the end of that time frame, I sat in the office of a neurologist who I want you to hear me say, I think he was trying to get my attention. It'll sound disrespectful, but I don't all these years later think he was disrespecting me. I think he saw this wildly naive girl who had a double stroller trying to raise two babies at the same time, and one of them was very sick. And he said, there are four degrees of cerebral palsy, mild, moderate, severe, and profound. And your son has severe cerebral palsy. He's not going to walk. I don't know if he's going to talk. I don't know if he'll live independently. You look like a whippersnapper to me, but I'm telling you something. I don't know what the big idea you had was. Adopting a child at this severity at the same time you're trying to raise your other one. But the faster you get your head wrapped around this diagnosis, the better off for this kid it's going to be. And as I'm listening to him talk, I had a soundtrack playing in my mind. You know the way that sometimes stories that we thought we had put to rest come back because God has more for us in them. And just the year and a half before then, we had buried my father who died after a cancer battle of about a year. And during my dad's illness, I asked Jesus to heal him in every way that the Bible taught us. In Jesus' name and with two or three people and, you know, all the ways the Bible teaches us. I had asked God to heal my dad and he didn't. And I had a spiritual bruise on my heart from that season. The like, maybe you don't do everything you say you're going to do. Maybe you only do it for other people. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe he wasn't good enough. Like all the things that happen when something that we ask for doesn't happen exactly the way we want it to. And I'm listening to this physician telling me the prognosis of my son. And I'm playing back the soundtrack that this is like nothing's going to ever get any better. Like this is, this is just the end of it. I can't even ask. I don't even know how to pray for this. We put all of our plans for Mexico back on hold. And I entered into the world of therapies, right? Physical therapy and occupational therapy. And uh, Evan responded well to this hot water therapy. So we put a hot tub in our living room like rednecks. We had like this magnetic therapy. Like I went to therapy, like the whole household was trying to get healthy. And a year and a half later, my friends continue to live in Mexico and nothing was really making much progress. And I had, we were living in Warren County at the time and Warren County has a program where they send uh, physical therapists from the county into your natural habitat to give you ideas on ways that you can intervene in children with special needs. This lady named Jan Nafsinger came to my house one day, and she watched the scene that had happened in my house a million times, where my daughter Emma, who was the same age but very, very mobile after all those therapies herself, walked over to where Evan was, and she took a toy out of his hand, and she walked to the other side of the stage, and uh, the other side of the room, and Evan would just start crying, right? Because she just took his toy away. And I would go over to where she was because she would drop it because she'd be a year and a half and could care less about the toy after about six seconds. And I would go bring it back to him because his muscles were hypertonic. Everything was really painful for him. He would sweat and cry and be in pain. He'd make eye contact with me. And she was watching one of those moments and she said to me, hey, listen, you rescue him too much. You need to let him work for it a little bit more. I'm like, work for it. We dangle Cheerios in front of his face all day long. He's in therapies all the time. I'm like, if I can help him for a moment, I'm going to do it. She's like, I don't know. I just think you need to let him work a little bit more. She leaves my house and later that same day, something, um, a scene like that repeated itself. And Emma came over and got a Bob the Builder toy out of Evan's hands. Walks the other side of the room and drops it. And I go automatically to go get it and give it back to him. But then I remembered what Jan had said, and I sat down on my kitchen floor, 
as I heard Evan crying, and I just started crying myself. There was like a sink. Our family room and kitchen were kind of in one big space, but there was like a sink between us. And so he couldn't see me as I sat down on the other side of that sink. And I just kept thinking like, Lord, I don't even understand what you're doing. Like, I thought you put this like Mexico thing in our heart. I thought that I I just, this isn't what I thought this was going to look like. And I, I mean, I just had so many questions. And I could tell that, you know, like when you're a mama, you, you know what every cry means, right? Like that I'm hungry cry or I'm scared cry or my brother just hit me cry or whatever. I could tell Evan's crying started to change. So I peeked over the sink to look at him and he was moving. And it wasn't like all that attractive, but he was kind of moving on his stomach, maybe like an army crawl would look. So I got up from my spot and I got in front of him the way you do when you're trying to teach a child how to swim or whatever. And I'm like, buddy, look at you. Come on, you're moving. Look, you know, I'm like all excited. When he moved a few feet, more than he had ever at that point moved before, I left the room to go and get our phones that used to attach to the walls. Remember those? And uh, (laughs) our cameras that didn't used to be on our phones because I was going to video it to show his dad later that night and call my mom to come over. So I go out of the room. There's like no danger leaving him because he doesn't go anywhere. I went to go get those things. When I came back into the room, he had gotten all the way across the living room. And so I just dropped those two pieces of technology on the floor. I was no longer even cognizant of them. Evan had gotten all the way up against this couch. And there was like this fabric skirt kind of on the bottom of that couch. And he put his hands around it. And it wasn't very pretty, but he rocked himself up until he stood. And when he stood up, all the hairs on the back of my neck kind of like started to move. Because I was just like... I mean, I'm watching something that looks supernatural to me. And then he did what physical therapists call cruising, and he cruised himself to the end of the couch. And he got in the end, and he pivoted on his heel, and he walked over into my arms. And I was like, I got nothing for you. I mean, I don't don't, don't need, I didn't even have words for it. I just scooped him and his sister up, and I stuck him in the car, and I decided to drive myself over to CHCA, right? So I'm like, it's, if you've never been there, it's like every private school you've ever seen, big circle drive in the front of it. You know, it's like, I'm coming like, like you know take out all the shrubs on that circle drive Todd could see from where he was standing me take everything out in the front of the building so he comes running out to find out what was on fire I don't have any words I just unbuckle Evan from his car seat and I stick him on the ground and he kind of walks over to his dad and we just have this moment in that lobby where we just hug and cry and laugh and we talk about soccer fields and wedding aisles and all kinds of things we've never talked about before. And after he hugs me, he goes, I so know exactly where you're going right now. I'm like, I am. I'm going to go see Dr. Whippersnapper right now. I need someone to explain to me what is going on. So I stick him back in the car. I drive to Children's Hospital. Precious nurse on duty was like, you don't have an appointment today, Mrs. Guckenberger. I'm like, I don't care. Please, can someone just let me see him for a minute between patients? He comes out to look and see what was happening. I just stuck Evan on the ground. He walks over to the doctor, and I'm just listening, like, medical miracle. Like, do you have a word for me? Like, what is, what just happened? He would later write that being with his sister, Emma, was like being in therapy all day. That She was modeling his, he was modeling her movements and motivated by her. And I would laugh because every social worker I ever had come to the house told me what we did, which is called artificial twinning, is a terrible idea. And I'd always say, it actually wasn't my idea. We moved back to Mexico almost immediately. And in Mexico, we play a bunch of soccer. So when Evan was a preschooler, he began to play soccer on a little preschool soccer team. And he would, like, run down the field and he'd get a goal. And I'd be on the sidelines just crying my eyes out, right? Because just because I was. 
And then he would turn, you know, eight and nine and play on a soccer team and he'd get a goal and he'd like look at me like I don't know who that girl is over there crying because, you know, he looked like everybody else so he would just act like he didn't know who I was. And then he'd be like 14 and he'd say, you can't travel with my soccer team this weekend if you're going to cry if I score. Like you can't do it. (laughs) And then we moved back here to Cincinnati when he was 16 years old. And in Ohio, we play a bunch of football. And so he figured out how to catch a football as the wide receiver for his high school football team. And um, I remember the first time he caught a touchdown pass, I was so happy how far away the stands were from the end zone. I brought a picture of him and his sister. Today, he's a college sophomore at Taylor University where he plays for their football team. And I had the chance recently to speak at, that's his sister, Emma. Um, I had a chance recently to sit uh, at their school chapel, Christian school. And I got to tell the story of Evan's life. And he comes up on stage. And because like no 19-year-old boy talks about those kinds of things to his friends, no one had any idea about his history. And I said to them, as the students were cheering for him, I said, listen, the reason we tell a story like this is not so that you're, you all know some wildly personal information about our family. The reason we tell you a story like this is so that you have a living, breathing, physical example that with God, absolutely nothing is impossible. Because I'm the same girl who prayed to the same God for the same kinds of things, healing for two people that I loved. And one of those stories turned out nothing like I liked it. And one of those stories turned out exactly how I liked it. And I realized at the end of that, man, I was so busy prior to that, trying to make God into my image. And God taught me at the end of that story, I am sovereign. And I write the very best stories. And if I write a story in a particular way, it's because there's purpose in it. And you can trust me with it. Our family verse in the aftermath of Evan's healing and then the eight children that would come after him comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8. It says, because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. We realized how full our basket was and how much he has asked us to give what is in our basket away to others. I, um, I, I think that sometimes that happens with people that are physically orphaned and sometimes that happens with people that are emotionally orphaned. And sometimes when we, when we are to train our eyes to look to the outside instead of to, the, in, instead of to our own needs, it, there's a passage in Acts chapter 16 where Paul plants a church in a, a town called Philippi. And Philippi was actually a colony of Rome. So when you walked into Philippi, you should feel like you were in Rome. It had all the, all the trappings of Rome, architecture and language and money and influence. In fact, everybody in Philippi actually thought they were Roman citizens. And Paul would later write to that town in a book called Philippians, your citizenship isn't in Rome. It's not even Philippi. Your citizenship is actually in a place called heaven. You need to colonize heaven. You need to create spaces where when people come into your church, they feel like they're in like a little heaven in the same way that you feel like you're in a little Rome. You should talk like you're in heaven and act like you're in heaven and love like you're in heaven. I um, live in a neighborhood here in Cincinnati that has new construction. And I had lived there for a couple of years. And there was no stop signs in our neighborhood because there were hardly any houses. But this last August, they put a stop sign just two little tiny uh, driveways away from me. And I'll tell you the truth. I came to a complete stop at it the morning that it was put in. But later that night, 
I had the radio on and I was on the telephone and I was talking to my son and I drive this 18 year old two seater convertible and the top was down and it was dark outside. Did I say that already? And it went, I, I went flying through that stop sign and I never even once um, thought about it except that I could kind of hear that there was somebody yelling behind me. And when we pulled into the garage, I said to my son, Tyler, did, did, was there someone just chasing me? And he goes, I, I think so. So I send him inside. I go out and ask my neighbor who was out in her driveway, did you just chase me in my car? She's like, no, that's our new neighbor. He just moved in right over there. I was like, oh, well, um, what's, what's going on? I, have not, I don't think I've met him yet. She's like, oh, yeah, he just moved in, but traffic safety is a real, is a real priority for him, and uh, he's not happy that you went through that stop sign. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what can I do? And I go inside my house, and you saw that pyramid. My house is full of teenagers. So I said to these teenagers, like, what, what are my options? Like, what, I need to tell, I need to, like, I need to talk to this guy. He just chased me. And they, you know, they've grown up on a steady diet of YouTube and reality television. They had all kinds of ideas of what I should do. <laughs> and I told them, uh, we live as if we live in a colony of heaven. I need that man to feel like when he finishes interacting with me that he's interacted with someone who has their citizenship in another place. So I had no ideas what to do. I just went to bed that night like, God, I, I, I want to make space for you in this conversation. I want to represent you. I want to chase after someone who's like, you know, got so much not going on that he decided to yell at a neighbor he's never even met yet. Like there's something going on inside of him that's probably hurting like, what, what are my options? Probably not toilet papering or egging and all those other ideas. <laughs> the next morning I woke up and I thought, you know what? I make a pretty good chocolate chip cookie. So maybe I'll make him, um, maybe I'll make him some cookies. So I got on Pinterest and I printed off these little stop signs that I cut out. And uh, I put it together in this little box. I brought a picture of it to show you all. And I just sent it to my husband. And I knocked on the door and I said to my neighbor, hi, my name is Beth Guckenberger. And I don't think I've met you. But I know last night I upset you. And of course, he didn't recognize me because I had gone flying by him the night before. But that's really, that's all I had. That was the end of my comments for him. And I just, I just waited. I just made this space and waited. And we began to exchange a little bit about our lives one with another. He's kind of a grumpy man. And I'm sure he had never, I bet he left that conversation thinking I just overshared with that neighbor. But it's begun a relationship that I hope ends in him coming into a fellowship like a space like this, a room like this where he can share. Because that's, I mean, really, that's the heart that God puts inside of us. Look outside of yourself. See who's marginalized and hurting out there and invite them in. Be so delighted to share your life with them, not just the gospel, your life. And sometimes when we go after orphans, they literally come into our families. And sometimes when they go, we go after them, they come to our dinner table. Because I'm telling you, orphans are not the result of financial scarcity. All the money in the world will not resolve the problems of orphans. Orphans are the result of relational brokenness. I'll finish with this story. Uh, Todd and I met a set of twin girls that first summer of 97. They were 11 years old at the time. They wouldn't come and live full-time as our daughters until they were almost 15. I could hardly tell the difference between them. We used to have codenades for them. One of them cut their hair short and one of them cut their hair long, so we would talk about them like long hair and short hair. We we thought that was a beautiful code we had because they didn't speak English until one day they left us a note where they were after school and they signed it long hair and short hair. And we realized (laughs) our codes were gone. 
They went on to graduate high school and college, and there in Mexico, we were hosting American college students to spend the summer with us, and there's this one boy from Ohio State. He was such a great guy. I kept telling him, you have such a heart for orphans. You come year after year. But it turns out he really had a heart just for one of them. And uh, he he eventually um, asked us if he could marry uh, our daughter. And my husband uh, married them here in the Cincinnati area just a couple of years ago. And as they walked down that aisle, he got to the end right in front of the church. And he turned around and he looked at the congregation and he said these words. They come out of the book of Exodus. He said, your branch is now grafted firmly into my tree. You and yours may now enjoy the the blessings of a thousand generations. When we bring people outside of our family in, we graft their branches into our tree. Maybe it would be for a, a meal or a season, or maybe it'll be for their lifetime. But that's... That's the call God has for us, that we would look with eyes to see who is outside and we would invite them in. And uh, at the end of Oliver Twist, it says, I mean, if you look at the World Health Organization, it'll tell you that without intervention, 90% of orphans go into the black market or prostitution. That's the very destiny that Oliver Twist found himself in. But we have been called to be that intervention, to represent as a to represent God on this earth and to go after those who've been lost. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for stories that you tell that are greater than ones we could ever imagine on our own. Continue to give us eyes to see those that are hurting in our neighborhood and around the world. That we might represent you well. Thank you for the blessings that you have grafted into our lives as we come into your tree. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. So as you think about the story of Oliver Twist, as you think about what Beth shared for us, you know, that's really part of why Horizon is here, is because God wants to tell you that he loves you, that he wants a relationship with you, that he wants to make you a home. We don't often think of ourselves like orphans. We don't always think of ourselves as people in need. There's a lot of times and places that we feel like we have life under control, but every once in a while we get that glimpse of just how needy we might actually be emotionally in our hearts, in our minds, when we're faced by the kind of fears that this song was just telling us not to pay attention to, and that there is a God who loves us so much that he sent his son down here to die on our behalf to offer us to be a part of his family. So I hope you hear that this morning, even as we explore this story of Oliver Twist. And as we hear these stories that, Beth, I just thank you for sharing about your own family and some of your own kids and getting to see that hands-on. But also, you know, a couple weeks from now is one of the biggest holidays of the year, Easter. Did you know that's coming up? You know, that's why we celebrate it. You know, it's not Easter bunnies, it's not eggs, even though we are going to have a helicopter fly over the property and drop eggs full of goodies for the kids. Really, it's because that's God's story for us that he's inviting us into, is that Christ was here, died and rose again, so that you and I could say, that sounds impossible, and God could say with me, nothing is impossible, including you being a part of my family. 
So I hope that you are back with us in two weeks as we celebrate Easter together. You um, can pick up tickets for that. If you go out these doors and down the hall to the atrium, there's a ticket table down there. Just before you get to the ticket table, uh, there's also a table set up there for Beth with some of her books that you can go and check that out. And we will have six identical services on Easter weekend. Two of them will be Saturday, March 31st at 4 o'clock and 5 o'clock. Those are the same times that the egg drops are going to happen. There will also be a a petting zoo for the kids with some bunnies and some little chickens, all that good kind of stuff. And then on Sunday, April 1st at 8.50, 10, 11.10, and 12.20. You do not have to remember all those times. You just have to pick one. (laughs) And make sure that you've got a ticket. Now, if you do come to the 12.20, there's a complimentary meal afterwards but you do have to RSVP for that so we know how much food to get. So if you got a 1220 ticket, on the back of there will be a link where you can go and sign up for that meal. Now the last thing I want to let you know is, as you're listening to me right now, if you say, two weeks from now, oh, that's, we're on spring break, and you're not going to be here, but you took tickets, would you please bring them back? Because then we can actually pass those tickets out to other folks who will be here, and you can just enjoy the sandy beaches wherever you are on that weekend. So if you've got tickets you're not going to use, please, please bring them back. We'll pass those out to other folks. And then we'll see you next week for more of Plotline and in two weeks for Easter. Thank you for coming. <laughs>